morning. My name is John Perrine. I'm the pastor here at Link Community Pink in Lincoln Park, as well as John Ferguson. Uh, we are so excited tonight about our Christmas service, but we are so excited you are here this morning to worship with us. I'm really excited to jump into this series, but what an incredible piece of art, wasn't it? That kind of helps you enter into the room, the making room, this space in preparation that Mary had for what God was about to do at Christmas time. Um, my wife has been pressing me this whole series to just keep talking about what Advent is. We technically are in these four Sundays leading up to Christmas where the church for thousands of years now has declared that this should be a time of Advent, a time of waiting, a time of longing, a time of preparing. And so this morning especially, as we are inching closer and closer to Christmas, wherever you're going to be on Christmas Day, I wanted to just take a chance as we sort of close this last Sunday in Advent to, to think about what preparation looks like. What does it mean to prepare room for Jesus's arrival in our own lives? Uh, as I was thinking about preparation, I couldn't help but ponder the preparation I tend to do when guests are coming over to my house. Now, this has happened for many of you who have come over to my apartment. Uh, the preparation tends to look quite frantic. Maybe you've noticed my apartment looks clean and tidy. Maybe you as well are one of those people that whenever guests come over, a nice candle is lit. Uh, the, the pillows on your couch or sofa are nicely, neatly arranged. Your bed is likely made. Uh, but that's not what my apartment normally looks like, right? That is, that is a false reality. And so uh, to capture this, um, there actually is this YouTuber named Chris Fleming, who had a comedy video he put together. Now, I think he's making fun of his mother in this video, but I just want to prepare you. This is, in fact, me every time you are coming over to my house. So we'll go ahead and check out this video. Gotta clean the house now! Now, now, people! I want this place looking like Disney on ice in one minute. Terry, if you haven't made your bed, throw it away. It's too late to make it now. Company is coming. Get rid of the couches. We can't let people know we sit! The chairs need to be pushed in. There cannot be any sign of living in this house. I don't care if we have to throw everything out. I want this place looking like a new Mediterranean fusion restaurant by noon. So, so that is what preparation tends to feel like for me. But, but let me just ask you this question as we are approaching Christmas. What would it look like if preparation were not that frantic? If preparation were not the 15 minutes that you have before a guest arrives to make your place look like a new Mediterranean fusion restaurant, as Chris uh, <laughs> says in his video. Um, I, I think that what it would mean or what it would look like is that there actually is this time you set aside to prepare. Uh, there's preparation time that you build into your week, into your calendar. Uh, for a season, I, I just want to be clear, my, my wife and I have, have two kids now, a three-year-old, the other one's almost two. Uh, we have no more preparation time. Our apartment is always messy. It is barely clean when you arrive over at our place, and as soon as you leave, it becomes messy again. But there was a window, a time where we as a couple married, you know, both working, both really into hospitality. We loved hosting. I know some of you here in this room are this couple right now. Uh, we would set aside our Saturdays to have a reset the house day. Do any of you do this on Saturday? So for us, we had the luxury at this point in our lives where Saturday was 
the great day of preparation. Saturday, we would clean floors. We would go into the bathrooms and we'd sort of divvy up the responsibilities. We'd find that even those deeper crooks and crannies in our home could be leisurely cleaned at our own time on Saturday. And the best part was that we knew every Saturday we were going to prepare, we were going to clean, we were going to set this time aside so that everything would be ready, so that when our friends would come over during the week, we would laugh, we would smile at each other, we'd simply move a cushion or two, but we knew we'd be ready. I think at its best, this is what Advent is meant to be for every Christian. Advent is a time of preparation. It's actually the church getting our attention to say every year you need to set aside some time to prepare because your king is coming. So to think just very practically about what that would mean for us, we're going to look at one figure who is sent before Jesus to prepare the way for him. Uh, I'll just recap, though, before we do, these couple of paintings that we've been moving through. Uh, this series, we've been partnered with an artist, Betty Dickinson, who's just released this beautiful devotional. It's worth checking out, called Making Room in Advent. Uh, our first week, we looked at Zechariah. If you remember this painting, Zechariah, who is told to prepare for this son who is coming, and yet he does not believe he is not ready, and so his mouth is silenced until his son John is born. Or the next week, we looked at Mary when Mary receives word that she has this monumental task and yet her and her own limitations. She has to just open up her hands, uh, allow God to move through her own life. Last week, we talked about Elizabeth and Mary and we looked again at this song that Mary sang, this song that we just listened to, the song that declared the king is coming. This week, we want to look, uh, maybe unexpectedly, at this figure that the church almost always brings our attention to in Advent. And it's this figure of John the Baptist. So there's two stories happening at Christmas time of two births. One is, of course, the birth of Jesus, and we talk about these scripture passages a lot. But the other is about John, because John has this monumentally important role to play. So I'm going to actually hand this over to Betty Dickinson, who we filmed, kind of giving us introductions to each of these paintings. And we'll go ahead and look at this painting she captures of this other child born along with Jesus, who is going to be called John. As the Christmas story moves forward, it was time for Elizabeth to give birth to a son, John the Baptist. Now, any mother will tell you that receiving a new child into her life takes some preparation. Her body or home must make room, but also her soul. She must yield to a being she has never met. The center of her world must shift. She will no longer be the center. Her child will take center stage. This is the kind of soul preparation God created John the Baptist to facilitate. Like mothers getting ready to receive their child, Israel needed to prepare to receive the promised Messiah. They needed to make room for him, to shift themselves out of the center and receive Jesus as king. And John prepared the way. Elizabeth's neighbors were thrilled for her. They shared her joy, and like we know relatives do, they wanted to give their own input on the name. They're about to name him after his father, Zechariah, but Elizabeth stops them and shouts, no, he's to be called John. Well, the relatives just don't know what to do with this. This breaks with tradition. It was common practice to name a son after their father, 
an indication of what this child would be. Surely he would be a priest like his father Zechariah, right? They turn to Zechariah to see what he thinks. Likely Zechariah was not only mute, but deaf. So they make signs to him to ask him what he thinks. Zechariah then takes a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he writes, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah's mouth opens and is able to speak again. With his tongue freed, Zechariah bursts into song. He sings, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the path of peace. According to Blue Letter Bible, the word for prepare in verse 76 is associated with the ancient custom of readying the path for a king's arrival. Someone would go before the king to level the roads and make them passable. Jesus the king was coming, and John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way. So how do we level the roads in our lives this Christmas? How do we prepare ourselves for Jesus? So I just want to briefly draw your attention this morning to this figure, this other child, John, and what role he is playing in the life and the coming of Jesus, in the coming of Jesus even into our own lives. So there's this passage that we'll be working out of in the Gospel of Luke. You can feel free to look there if you have a Bible with you. This is going to be Luke chapter 3, and we're just going to look at a couple verses here. This is Luke 3, verses 1 to 3. It's going to summarize what John is sent to do. Why is there such a big deal, this big pronouncement, that not only is Jesus coming, but first this one, John the Baptist, will appear. Uh, This is what Luke 3, 1 to 3 says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so let me just give you a tiny bit of context to this passage historically. Um, Interestingly, we have Josephus, the ancient historian who outside of the Bible is going to give us a lot of uh, verification of what's going on in this time. Josephus is going to talk more about John the Baptist than he's even going to refer to Jesus of Nazareth, which just shows John the Baptist made swells with this message that Luke summarizes John the Baptist preaching. So why was it such a big deal that John the Baptist was going around the countryside, coming from the wilderness to tell all of Israel to prepare with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, I think it can be helpful to know, if you go back to Israel in this time, Israel was under the occupation of Rome. And because Israel was under the occupation of Rome, Israel knew that the promises of God had not yet fully been realized in their midst. In fact, Israel's heartbeat as a people was the promise that God would dwell with them, that God's presence would quite literally dwell among his people always. And this was symbolized for Israel at the temple, 
where God literally came and dwelt. There's this big cloud of this pillar of smoke that comes down when King Solomon dedicates the temple, and the people of Israel knew God had come to dwell with them. But something terrible, something tragic happens in the book of Ezekiel, if you're reading through Israel's story. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees this vision in which he realizes God's presence because of the people's rebellion, because of the people's sins, God's presence was departing from Israel's midst. It was going, it was leaving. In fact, the cloud goes up and it vanishes. You can see why as Ezekiel is telling this vision to the people, the people would have been utterly distraught. And around the same time, the Assyrian nation comes into the north of Israel and takes the people and scatters them across the world. Then the Babylonians come in, they invade Jerusalem. Jerusalem is uprooted, they're taken into Babylon. Yet, as all of this terrible tragedy is taking place, if you have heard any of these stories from the Old Testament, the prophets start telling there's a time coming when the son of David will return, and God's presence will, in fact, come back to the people. And the people of Israel start getting just a little bit excited that this man by the name of Nehemiah, and then this other man by the name of Ezra, both are going to lead Israel back. Nehemiah is going to rebuild the wall. Ezra is going to help the people rebuild the temple. The word of God, the law of God, is being proclaimed in Israel once again. And yet, if you go back to the book of Ezra, this moment happens when the temple is gone to be dedicated to the Lord yet again. And unfortunately, instead of God's presence descending, to the temple to fill it once more as God had done in the time of King Solomon. The people begin to weep and cry because God's presence does not come down to this new temple they have built. For this reason, all this context, most historians believe that Israel at this point in Rome's occupation would have actively been asking each other, how do we get God's presence back in Israel again? How do we have God's presence return to dwell among us Again, and there were all kinds of different postures and approaches. There were the Pharisees who told Israel, if you just actively obey the law enough, if we can just all get our act together, we can stick to the strictest letter of the law, then God's presence will return. Uh, There were also the Sadducees who said, maybe if we can just restore politics, political power here in Israel, maybe we can just set things up, arrange them in such a way that, you know, God will choose to return. But there was one extreme group called the Essenes, that we have all of this evidence for. It's where we got the Qumran scrolls from that were sort of hidden away out in the wilderness of Israel because this community believed that all hope was lost for the people of Israel themselves. And the only way that God's presence was going to return was if a group of them got out of Dodge, left Jerusalem behind, committed themselves entirely to God's vision for how they were supposed to live. And there in the wilderness, they just waited until God would finally appear. Now, this is all very interesting because we find there's this one named John who has this very interesting situation in his birth. He's born late, late, late in life to Elizabeth, who was previously barren. And he goes out to the wilderness. He goes out to this wilderness area where the Essenes are camped out, where they're sitting and waiting for God. And the wilderness for Israel represented all the times that Israel had to wait and had to wander as they were just hoping and praying that God's presence would come again. But there in the wilderness, John does not commit to this way of the Essenes, this sort of rejection and denial of all society. Instead, John comes back into the countryside, into Jordan itself, and he begins saying, if you come get baptized with me, 
together we can prepare ourselves for the king who's about to appear. Now, this kind of sets the stage for, I think, why John was electrically thrilling in his day, uh, why people took very seriously his call that there were some sins that they needed to be forgiven of. And you can appreciate then the hopeful energy of these crowds that begin swelling around John as the people of Israel start to say, what if the king is about to come? What if our king is going to return again? Yet you'll notice if you look closely at this passage, there's one action John calls for that is going to be as costly in his day as it is now. If this preparation is going to occur, the people of Israel are going to have to repent. Repent. Now, repentance is an uncomfortable word, I think, in the year 2022. I don't think anyone uh, would enjoy being, said, uh, being asked, you know, have you repented recently? Um, hey, I, I heard you got into a fight with your boyfriend the other week. Uh, did you repent or did he repent? Uh, which one of you chose to repent? Uh, but repentance, quite simply, uh, in its original Greek, means a change of mind. Repentance is actually quite simple. It's just a change. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the word repent that this Greek word derives from has actually this vivid motion with it. Repentance in Hebrew quite literally means to turn, to turn. You're walking in one direction, and when you repent, you turn or you change the direction that you were previously walking in. Um, there's an infamous story in my family about uh, an illustration of turning, a repentance of my entire self. It happened when I was 15. My family was in Colorado. We were hiking, uh, just having a great time doing all these different hikes. And as a 15-year-old, I was pretty confident, cocky even, in my skills as an adventurer. And so I, when my family was doing this big hike up one of the major cliffs, I blasted up to the top. I sat there at the summit. I was listening to music as an angry 15-year-old would. I was eating snacks. My family finally arrives. And I say, hey, I've been waiting here too long. I'm heading back down. See you guys later. Peace. And so as I start going down uh, the trail up to this pretty high mountain in Colorado, had all these big cutbacks. I had obviously gone up the cutbacks, and as a 15-year-old, I was impatiently angry that I was having to do all these cutbacks to get to the summit. So as I'm heading down this path, I start thinking to myself, you know what would save a lot of time if I just cut through the cutbacks? So just start leapfrogging cutback to cutback. And so I'm going down and I hit one and it's great. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm really cruising now. This is so great. I go down, I hit another one. I think, man, I'm cruising. This is really great. And then I'm going down and I'm not hitting one. And then I think to myself, well, the cutback's just probably over to my left. And so I'm going further down to my left. And I think, no, okay, so maybe the cutback was actually to the right. And so I'm going further down in the woods on this mountainside to the right. And at this point, I've now put about 25 solid minutes into leaving the trail behind. I'm in a fully wooded, uh, no orientation to where I am, what is going on. Uh, and at this point, I start to realize 25 minutes in that I, I'm pushing ahead and I'm, I'm not aware at all where any trail is. I've tried different directions and I, I can't find it. So at this moment, I'm tired. I've been hiking all day. I've overextended myself. I have overconfidently uh, blasted away from my family that had more food, more water. I mean, I'm running out of supplies. 
and I'm, I'm only 25 minutes in, but I know as I'm pushing, I just keep thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to hit the trail. I've got to hit the trail. It would be so much more work to have to go back up. I'm going to hit the trail. I just need to keep pushing. And finally, finally, right around that 30-minute mark, I think the grace of God, <laughs> perhaps the Holy Spirit, nudged me in my mind to say, this is not working. You need to stop. <laughs> and as I paused for a moment, I'm looking up, I'm trying to see where I am, and all of a sudden, like this great lead weight, it hits me. I'm going to have to go all the way back to the top of the mountain in order to find this trail again. And for just a moment, I mean, everything in me wanted to not do that, <laughs> wanted to keep exploring, wanted to say, maybe if I just try one of these other directions again. Yet, in this moment, the moment of repentance, I realized I needed to turn and take the costly trail all the way back up. Sure enough, I had entirely lost the trail, which required me to ascend all the way to the summit. I was almost around the other side of the mountain. I was nowhere near the path. Uh, when I get to the top of the mountain, I look, and there are miles of forests that just extend from this mountain. I mean, I would have been lost. And uh, the end of the story is that I start cruising down the mountain, following the cutbacks, as you can uh, believe at this point, quite closely. And by the time I get near the bottom of the mountain, I pause for just a moment to sit down uh, as a woman who's walking up the trail sees me just sitting there as a 15-year-old, totally exhausted. She says, are you the one that the park rangers are looking for? <laughs> sure enough, my family had called the park rangers, and finally I got down and was reunited with my family. I, I think this image, though, helpfully describes why repentance for so many of us is so challenging and difficult. Because though it is as simple as a change or a turn, Typically, repentance requires a reorientation that will be costly to our way of being in the world. I really like that N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, highlights repentance this way. He simply describes repentance as rethinking your entire view of reality in light of the person of Jesus. I think with N.T. Wright's definition, you get the sense that repentance is a turning, but actually Repentance, much like my own experience, is a returning to the summit. It's this costly path back up, a scramble to the top of a mountain when you are tired and exhausted, and yet the only way you're going to find or orient your way in your existence is if you return to Jesus himself, if you actually can center yourself on a point, a central costly point to give new direction to your life. How do we do this kind of turning? Uh, what does repentance even look like? How would John the Baptist have described this type of preparation to us? I'll take you back to Luke chapter 3, and this is now verses 4 to 6. As John is declaring to Israel that they need to repent, they need to change their entire orientation of being, he's going to describe repentance this way. As it is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Just sit with this for a moment as you think about your own life. What would it mean 
in your life for every mountain and hill to be made low. I, I just love that image, that if repentance is going to happen, the things that are high and lifted up, the things that are visible and prominent, they're actually going to have to be brought down. <laughs> You're going to need to clear some room. This may look like you taking that thing that is so vital, so central, that rhythm, that perk, that benefit, that behavior, and it's going to need to be brought into its proper place. It's going to be flattened. But interestingly, it's not just every mountain and hill that's made low, but every valley in this preparation is going to be filled in. I wonder here about those voids, those deficits, those gaping holes in our self, in our character, in our life, either places that you feel low or insecure. What would it mean for those valleys to be filled in, for this preparation to look like you no longer bottoming out every time you hit those valleys in your life? Equally crooked roads shall become straight. I love there's a theologian named St. Augustine who talks about our hearts being bent in on themselves. The sense in which our desires, our orientation, really even when you think about the story of me on the mountainside, like just a self-interested comfort. Like I knew at some level what needed to happen and yet I just felt hungry and sad <laughs> and disappointed that I was going to have to do this costly thing. What would it look like for you if crooked roads in your own heart became straight. Finally, Luke tells us rough ways are going to become smooth. These bumpy areas of our lives. I mean, I think if I were to actually have time to sit down and prepare to make room for Jesus, I've been thinking about this week, uh, even as I look at the rhythms of my week, there are bumpy areas. <laughs> there are days in my week when I start working way too hard and too frantically. There are moments in my week when I know that my anger has flared or my sadness has kicked in or I'm just being a jerk to people around me. What would it mean for these rough ways to quite literally be smoothed by the intentional preparation of knowing that your king was coming? I think just to keep us simple this morning. We've got a 4 p.m. service coming. Uh, there's still more for us to go in entering into this Christmas uh, story. I'll just give you three practical suggestions on how you could actually participate in this task of repentance, which at times can feel almost overwhelming. First one is this, quite simply, to get honest with yourself. I, I think this, in many ways, is a gift that few of us partake in. Uh, I think most of us are running too hard and maybe a little bit too fast to actually slow down and pause. Uh, but just one really practical exercise is to take a day. Uh, for me, Mondays tend to be after church, like one of those windows in my week where I actually can move a little bit slower. And on Mondays, to sit down with something like a journal. You can pull up a note in your phone. And I just wonder if you were to ask yourself, sitting with Jesus, where if you were to get honest are areas of your life that you would love to see reoriented, those rough ways made smooth. I, I think you probably can do a better job than almost anyone else being honest about the places in your life where repentance is needed. But of course, uh, the second piece of advice that I would give you is that as you get honest, if you were to do this exercise with me, where you sit down and you just ask, what would it mean for me to really prepare for Jesus's coming? inevitably you will find that there is some resistance. So the second piece of advice I'd give you is to face or to address the, 
the resistance. If there's, you know, a list of 10 things that you'd say, man, I'd really love these couple of things to change. Some of them will feel great to you. Some of them will be like, man, I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to like wake up a little bit earlier and I'm going to spend some time praying. Great. Those are wonderful areas that probably pretty smoothly and naturally would help clear out this road. But then there's going to be a couple areas that are going to seem a little bit more costly. <laughs> these are the areas where it's not just turning, it's actually turning to realize you're going to go back up <laughs> the slope. And these are the areas where I would especially encourage you in this season of Advent to lean in. The author and theologian Frederick Buchner says this about darkness and light. He says, if there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see, there is also a terror about light because we can see. There's a terror about light because much of what we see in the light about ourselves and our world, we would rather not see, would rather not have been seen. But here's the great gift about Advent. It is an opportunity for you to take that preparation time that Saturday window, to actually address those crooks and crannies, those baseboards, those corners of your bathroom that you never get to clean. This is the moment for your own soul, where you get to look in and say, is there something in the year 2023 that God would actually want to do in me to prepare room in me for Jesus' coming now and in the future in my life? Final encouragement for you. If we need to get honest if we can lean in and address resistance. Final encouragement, especially as you're looking at the new year, is to just start small. Start small. This could be one simple step. Uh, this could be one new practice that you add. This could be one practice in your life that you take away. Uh, but I just, I really do want to encourage you, as the more and more I've been thinking about Advent, the more and more I see this season is a gift. Uh, the church is going to give you these different seasons to kind of mark your time. And I know we can get lost and swept up into the rush of buying presents and family, and my hunch is Christmas Day is going to fly by as fast for you as it flies by for me. But what if, what if even this week, before you get swept into all of the insanity that Christmas Day and next week will have, what if this week you intentionally sat down and you made some room in yourself for what God is doing in your life? Here's a summary. Are there mountains to be brought down? Are there valleys to be filled in? Are there crooked paths to be made straight? Or are there rough roads that could be smooth? Um, I want to take just a moment here to allow you some space to pray, to, to just be before God. We're going to move into communion in just a second. When we move towards communion, there's actually this prayer that we used to pray uh, in a previous church I was a part of. And it's just a prayer of confession. This confession that sort of empties out everything, all of the sins that you've been doing, all the things you've known you participated in, all the things that you haven't really seen or realized you've participated in. I just want to take the chance for us together as a community, as we're approaching Christmas Day, to pray this prayer of confession together. But before we do, would you take just a moment here, if you want to close your eyes, whatever's comfortable for you, you can get comfortable in your chair. Where is God speaking? Where are there mountains that may need to be brought down? Where are there valleys that could be filled in? Where are crooked paths that could be made straight? Where are rough roads that could be smooth? Right, I'm going to put this prayer on the screen. Take just a moment to look over the words to prepare yourself. You obviously don't have to say this with us, but 
if you're open to it, we'd love to pray this prayer together. And Andrew, if we go to the next slide as well, there's just going to be two slides for this confession. Let's go back to the first one, and we'll go ahead and read this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we move now to this table, this table that we've been sharing and celebrating together. And this table ultimately is the good news, even as we follow John the Baptist's call to repent and to prepare room. That what we are waiting for and what we are celebrating as a community is that Jesus has in his body and blood already offered to us the very forgiveness of sins, the presence of God that Israel had been hoping for and waiting for. That night as Jesus gathered with his disciples, he took bread, broke it, and gave thanks to God and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. Jesus also took the cup and said to his disciples, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and say this communion declaration together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We'll wait just a moment as the servers come forward, and then you can go. feel free to stand and approach for communion. Let me pray for us. God, we open ourselves up to whatever you want to do in us. We pray especially that this Advent, this Christmas, this next week, as all of us have breaks and work, as there's space for family, for connecting, for gift-giving and feasting, Lord, we pray that there would be new room made in our hearts and in our bodies, that you would open up new spaces for repentance, and that we as a community would chase after you, Jesus, that we'd step in to this cleansing baptism that John came to prepare us with, and that we would see our lives washed, washed with your love. We lift all these prayers up to you. We lift our community and this evening up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So great to have you with us this morning. Just a last reminder, obviously tonight, 4 p.m., so excited for you to come back. We are going to have you grab a donut. I see just a few donuts, but then clear out of this space as much as you are able. Uh, we're going to try to start moving into a hurried preparation. Speaking of hurried preparation, it's going to be happening this afternoon. Uh, feel free to grab a donut and a coffee as you make your way out. Uh, and then as John said, the 23rd, 7 p.m., Christmas Eve, Eve, we'd love for you to join us if you're in town. Let me pray this final blessing over you. If you want to lift out your hands to receive this prayer. As you go, May you learn to walk in the way of Jesus, where you are transformed by his mercy and love until your whole life proclaims the good news to our city that Jesus is Lord. Go in peace. We'll see you later this evening.